Connect. Influence. Optimize. You're listening to The Channel Channel, a podcast for executives and others involved in the authorized sale of electronic components. Brought to you by the ECIA, the Electronic Component Industry Association. Working to promote and improve the authorized distribution channel. Welcome to The Channel Channel. I'm Dale Ford, Chief Analyst at ECIA and responsible for ECIA market research and statistics and host of this session of the Channel Channel, a podcast sponsored by the Electronic Components Industry Association covering topics that are important for participants in the electronic components supply chain. I'm very pleased to welcome back Cliff Waldman, New World Economics CEO and the host of Manufacturing Talk Radio's Manufacturing Matters with Cliff Waldman. Cliff will be presenting at the ECIA Executive Conference in Chicago again this year. He'll be backed by popular demand, very much a, a strong presentation and coverage that our industry participants find highly valuable. So welcome back, Cliff. Thank you. Good to be back. <laughs> Great. Well, normally we would jump into what are you know the, the, the short-term issues, but there's an important issue you've been covering that um, is a, a, a challenge in progress, I guess we might say, that have, will have long-term impacts. And that is the demographics um, related to China and the news about China and their move to a three-child policy, along with data showing plummeting birth rates and slowing population growth around the world. Now, um, you've identified this as a very important issue for the long-term trajectory of goods demand. Maybe you could share with us uh, your research and insights on this important issue. I've been studying it for a while. Uh, the relationship between demographics and economic performance is actually a very successful area of research. I published my first paper on the demographic economic relationship in 2005. And that was a paper that I pu uh, published in um, the NABE Economic Journal on China's demographic destiny, as a matter of fact. And, and since then, I have done work, uh, you know, more, more, um, more directed to the, um, the global situation as a whole. What we are finding is what we expected, but it, I think it's coming faster and harder than we ever thought it would come. And that is, is that the world is going through a classic demographic transition uh, from uh, high fertility and high mortality, lots of births, but also early deaths. And now much of the world, not all of it, is coming down to very low fertility and increasing lifespans. The, uh, you know, the, uh, some of the big exceptions to the, the low fertility are, of course, in Africa, which has the most favorable demographic path, and, and places like India. But much of the world is going to be challenged by dramatically slowing uh, fertility, plummeting birth rates that we're even seeing in the United States, and increasing lifespans. And that has all kinds of economic implications. For one thing, lower fertility and lower birth rates mean that labor force growth is going to slow dramatically over the next 10, 20 years. Now, let's remember something. Why does that matter? Because long-term economic growth, the capacity, an economy's capacity to grow over the long term really only consists of two things. 
And that is the growth in labor hours, which is a function of the growth in um, labor force, uh, in the labor force, and the growth in labor productivity. Well, with this big demographic change in much of the world, long-term economic growth is not going to get much help from the growth in labor hours as fertility and birth rates plummet. So it's going to put more and more pressure on productivity and labor productivity growth to sustain long-term economic growth. Also, all an aging population with lower uh, birth rates means that you have less working age people to sustain the needs of the aging population, and that is going to put a cost on governments. That means aging is going to have an increasing cost for government policies. And in China, it's going to be massive. The over 60 population in China right now is the size of three or four European economies combined. So this is going to become one of the biggest economic issues for much of the world in the years to come. The interesting exception, of course, and the most the exception that I keep my eye on is Africa. Africa has a very young population, contrary to most of the world. That means it's going to have a big growth in the labor force participation, unlike a lot of the world. And that should be interesting to manufacturers. That should put a, the eye of, of the manufacturing community on Africa because it's not going to be a huge demographic challenge that much of the rest of the world is going to have. Those are interesting points. I guess I have two questions as a follow-up to the topic. First of all, going way back, I remember somebody, uh, an economist, commenting that the dependence of our economic growth on population growth was not sustainable. At some point, we were going to have to face how we would transition um, away from uh, economic growth driven by population growth. So uh, the first question is, given that people have seen this potential coming for a long time now, uh, are there policies, are there plans that have been developed to try and, and manage through the challenges that are seen? And then a second question, does technology perhaps offer part of the uh, solution to this challenge in terms of how it can enable higher levels of productivity and how it kind of changes some of the basic economic equations? Uh, so those are just two questions that come to my mind. Well, we haven't done enough. Uh, and, and much of the world hasn't done enough. Yeah, I mean, this the demographic phenomenon that we are seeing playing out very harshly right now was very predictable. It's been talked about actually for decades now. And again, there's in terms of long-term economic growth of any economy, there's only two equations in uh, there's only two variables in that equation. One is uh, growth in labor hours, and the other is growth in labor productivity. We're not going to sustain long-term economic growth on the growth in labor hours. It's not going to be there. Productivity policy is going to become the central focus of long-term economic policy. Now, are we doing enough? In some ways, markets have been doing that by creating new technologies and dispersing new technologies. New technologies are – I'll oversimplify it a little, and I'll divide it into two things. One are automation technologies that completely replace labor. Those are less common than, than people might think. The more common technologies are technologies that work with labor to create a more productive um, unit of output. 
So it's not necessarily that we are replacing labor with new technologies, but we are certainly making labor more uh, productive. Now, that being said, as we go forward, as labor actually becomes more scarce, and this is in the decade or so to come, as labor in much of the world becomes more scarce, unfortunately, we are going to have to find technologies that will replace labor because labor simply won't be there. So Again, you're, the answer to your question, have we done enough to shift our policies away from population and toward productivity? I don't think enough has been done. And, and one example of that is in the United States. I published a paper in 2016 that looked at the drivers of labor productivity growth in, in the manufacturing, labor and, and total factor productivity growth in the manufacturing sector. And one of the variables is innovation, both public and private. The, the share of GDP, uh, the, the total um, R&D, basic science investment in the public sector as a share of GDP was at its height in the Apollo era. In 19, you know, the late 60s, early 70s, it's been falling ever since. We really need to start making more public investments in innovation activities, in R&D, in basic science that would have uh, applications to markets from the public sector. If we don't do that, we are not going to really sustain the labor productivity growth that we need to sustain long-term economic growth. So there we have a failure of policy and one that we can change around now. It's just, it's just a matter of wanting to make those science and technology investments from the public sector. Absolutely, I wholeheartedly agree with that. You know, another thought comes to mind. Maybe China has been better at long-range planning than we have been in the West. You know, uh, a highly controversial topic you know, has been China's Belt and Road Initiative. And they've been especially focused on Africa in pursuing these policies. Now, given your comments about Africa becoming a critical destiny or, or location for accessing labor, you know, are we seeing China setting itself up in a very advantageous economic situation in the future, given uh, the ties they're establishing in Africa? I think so. Yes. Listen, who would have, even ten, even less than ten years, even five years ago, who would have thought you and I would be sitting here and have a having a conversation about labor shortages in China? It almost sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But they're going to see it. I mean, you know, and Ch China is. I mean, it's. China is an unusual economy in the sense that it's still in a developing uh, dynamic. It's not an advanced economy and it's getting close to being one, but it's not an advanced economy yet. But yet it has the, uh, the population demographics of, uh, that are similar to the U.S. and to Europe. So the long-held fear about China is that it's going to grow old before it grows rich. Well, they are in terms of labor inputs. Yes, I agree. It's development, it's eye toward Africa. Yeah, in that sense, it's smart, and I will give them credit for it. I think we need to start having a much more informed immigration policy. With all of this, immigration is going to become more important to the U.S. And right now, we have, at best, you would call a confused immigration policy. But for long-term economic growth, for long-term prosperity, long-term standard of living, immigration, even apart from the sometimes harsh politics of immigration, Immigration is going to become a critical economic issue. So that's what we need to do. U.S. manufacturers in terms of, uh, you know, pushing their global supply chain, Africa, Africa certainly has its challenges. 
nobody questions that, but it's it's labor uh, potential and the fact that it is now starting to embrace free trade throughout the continent, make it an interesting place for U.S. manufacturers to look. But yeah, I'll, I'll give China all the credit in the world for doing what it's doing. It, it, it at least shows me that it understands the problem. So if Africa is a key part of China's solution for the future, and you mentioned immigration policy, is Latin America a key part of the solution for North America in the future? I, I'm not wide-eyed as far as Africa is concerned. The challenges are still immense in many countries, but I have growing optimism about Africa for a number of reasons. Again, they're embracing a free trade. They're positive demographic path. The investments that some large countries can, uh, Ethiopia has a tragic situation, but uh, with, uh, but it, it's nevertheless large economies have made interesting investments that show that they can advance. So I have a little bit of just a, a, some muted optimism that is growing and growing from my part on Africa. Unfortunately, with Latin America is the most challenged part of the world economically right now. And that is just because the politics are horrible. You have some of the, the, the worst dictators in the world um, yeah. in Latin America. They've had no, no embracing of any kind of trade policies, nothing that would suggest that they understand how to at least stabilize the standard of living. So I, I, it's very hard to see Latin America as a solution to anything globally when they have so much to do to even start to get their populations on at least a stable economic path, if nothing else. Interesting. Well, hopefully we can get uh, some political courage to, to solve in the Congress our immigration challenges. But anyway, yeah. let's move on to... Uh, <laughs> Um, I should say, today's news headlines uh, uh, regarding economic growth. Now, the latest IHS market flash purchasing managers index on U.S. manufacturing uh, hit to an all hit an all-time high. Uh, they noted that new orders and exports were in May were the fastest on record, and so we're seeing a, a real surge in activity. In fact, they're expecting that. Um, manufacturing activity in June will have recovered all the way back to the pre-pandemic manufacturing levels. So the question is, how sustainable is this? Is this a temporary surge? Um, can this uh, continue on in the long term? If so, how long do you believe that this uh, uh, resurgence in manufacturing activity can last? Well, let, let's, let's remind ourselves of the story of the past year. In, in the first and second quarters, primarily the second quarter of, of 2020, we had a crash in manufacturing output activity that was the worst in, 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 at least since 1919. The Federal Reserve's Industrial Production um, Series, monthly uh, IP series, which goes back to 1919, the oldest economic indicator in the U.S. system, um, uh, has, tells us that we have not had that bad a crash in output in at, at least at least since 1919. Unfortunately, we don't have data uh, before then. And then policymakers, monetary and fiscal policymakers in the United States, put everything they had, leaned everything they had against it. It was the most aggressive policy effort probably in American history. So what that produces, what you would expect, a crash and and a, and soaring. We were soaring in the third quarter, um, in the in the fourth quarter, 
in terms of output growth. But remember, we were soaring. We were rocketing out of a very, a very deep hole. Then in the first quarter, manufacturing output growth is slowed. It, and it's slowed to the point of being just a little bit troublesome. Now, now I would call it, as of the latest output date, I'd call it sluggish. And what's happening is, is, you know, is not hard to see. Yes, we've had a wonderful resurgence of activity that came from the consumer who was benefiting from all that fiscal stimulus. That came from um, a, a, a long overdue resurgence of business investment from companies uh, and actually globally. But, you know, the, the problem is, is that we can't make the stuff. It's not sustainable right now because our, our supply chains are so very challenged in terms of critical inputs. We know about the chip shortage, doing terrible things to the auto industry, computers and electronics industry. We know about the problem of labor markets not clearing and we're not getting the labor supply that we need. So, you know, yes, in the, in, in the second quarter, we crashed. The third and fourth quarter, we soared. But coming into early 2021, manufacturing output really started to slow. It was about 12% on an annualized basis, roughly 12% on an annualized basis in the fourth quarter of 2020, and then just a little over a percent, I believe, in, in the first quarter of 2021. Now it's, it's a little better, but it, it, output is floundering, and it, it's not hard to see why. We, we just have supply chains that are, for a whole host of reasons, are not working now. So the sustainability of the resurgence in manufacturing output is a big question. In terms of manufacturing demand, that will level off. But that, you know, you have the, the, the strange story these days is that, yes, demand is probably going to stay with us for a while because of all the stimulus in the system. But that's not going to make a heck of a lot of difference in terms of manufacturing growth. Normally, you don't have that conversation. They go together. This time, they do. Interesting. So in terms of recovering economies and what we've learned from the past year, you know, uh, people are often pointing to the importance of uh, the vaccination effort, the lifting of COVID-19 restrictions. We're seeing, you know, they're, they're pointing to this as one of the key contributors to the return of economic uh, strength in the Americas. Uh, just how important has all of that been, the, the vaccinations and the lifting of uh, uh, restrictions been in, in the economic growth, in your opinion? Oh, it's critical. Let, let, let's remember, let, again, let's think about the past 14 months or so. The interesting thing is, is that this, this was not primarily an economic event. It was a health event. It was, it was, it, it, we are coming out of, we've seen the ebbing of one of the two or three great pandemics of, of history uh, that, that hit the United States very hard. The economic, the economic, the volcanic economic disruption was secondary to the fact that this was basically a health event. We closed down, we basically closed down as much of the uh, economy as we could, or at least the parts of the economy where people interact face to face to stop the spread of a dangerous virus. So, you know, there was not, at the time that we did that in early 2020, there wasn't much wrong with the economy. I mean, you can talk about long-term issues of productivity and inequality, but at least in terms of the basics of growth, at the time that the pandemic struck, the American economy was doing just fine. And, but we had to shut it down to save what probably was a heck of a lot of lives. 
Now, you know, but then we leaned in it with, with policy to try to prevent it, uh, to try to prevent an economic mess from turning into a financial mess and having a bigger wreck than we, we already had. So the answer is, is that for a while, and economists, and not only me, but economists were co- commenting on this, the, the, the path of economic growth is going to follow the virus. And that is true because this was an, an economic event that was entirely precipitated by a, a health event. There was nothing particularly wrong with the economy uh, when it hit. So, yes, vaccinations, allowing people to get back to their normal lives, to their offices, to shopping, to, to socializing, to going on vacation, to going in restaurants. Yes, they have, they have been and will continue to be critical to the, um, the, the path and the strength of, of recovery for the U.S. economy. Okay, good, good. So there was a recent headline in an economic report from the National Association of Manufacturers. It's, it said, global manufacturing soars, but input costs soar at fastest pace in 10 years. So with soaring raw material costs, inflationary pressures, what impact is that going to have on the manufacturing sector moving forward? Oh, it, we're seeing, as I said, it's, it's just, uh, there's a whole host of supply chain messes. First of all, it, 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 you can understand supply chain problems. And when we had a crash in one quarter, the second quarter of 2020, followed by a rocketing in, in the third quarter, that'd be hard for any supply chain system to, um, to handle. Then you have this strange problem with, uh, it's not so much a labor shortage, the labor is there. But the failure of labor markets to clear, to get people to take jobs, and that, that could be for a whole host of reasons. They're changing careers. They're uncertain. Some, many maybe still be fearing the virus if they went and, and worked in factories. And, and then you have, you know, uh, you've had, you have to remember that COVID was a global event. So all throughout the global supply chain, there are shortages of labor. And then we, we fail to invest in critical inputs. That, uh, like semiconductors. Now, semiconductors, the semiconductor right now, problem right now, short term, short term was because during COVID, people were, you know, doing everything in their houses. They were spent, they weren't spending money on restaurants and movie theaters and vacations, but they were spending a lot more money on laptops and electronics for their homes. So the demand for um, semiconductor related products was unusually high. And now with, with, the res, with the resurgence in both consumer and uh, business equipment demand, it, it, it's even higher than that. And you put that together with the fact that we really have not invested in semiconductor capacity, that, we, that we've left ourselves too overly dependent on Asia, particularly Taiwan, for our semiconductors. And it's, you know, it's no surprise that we have, not, so we have semiconductor shortages and we have labor shortages. And, and of course, we've had these terrible winter storms, particularly the one in te- Texas that caused the disruptions in petrochemical supply chains and resin supply chains. And of course, shortages and confusion always end up in higher prices. It always, a shortage always turns into a higher price, which makes it more expensive for manufacturers to, to buy the critical inputs that they need for, um, you know, for they're producing their end product, if they can get it at all. And of course, it's hurting, you know, in, 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 you know, in spite of wonderful, uh, the wonderful resurgence of demand, it's hurting manufacturing 
profit margins right now and uh, quelling manufacturing output. Yeah, we've had this nice demand resurgence, but output growth in the manufacturing sector really slowed after the fourth quarter of 2020. So those, those higher prices are coming from shortages and disruptions in the supply chain. They are making it harder for manufacturers to actually do what they do, which is to make goods, and they are hurting their profit margins. So that's, that's what it's doing to manufacturers. So that might bring us to another important topic, which is you, you've mentioned uh, the, the negative impacts of supply chain disruptions, and uh, you, you've noted the, the issue of semiconductor supply and everything. Uh, and how that's had an impact. We, we've seen a recent study that from Alex Partners, uh, their belief that the 2021 uh, global automotive industry will lose $110 billion in revenue because of the semiconductor chip shortage. So looking yeah. at all of this, people are saying we need to have more reliable supply chains in the US. They're saying we need to have more domestic production of semiconductors. So focused in on semiconductors, there's bipartisan support for passing a bill that would uh, direct uh, a significant investment to the semiconductor industry in the US to help shore up domestic production, have more reliable supply. Uh, government, you know, and, and, and just in, in light of that as well, Intel CEO recently stated that he expects the semiconductor shortage to last for several years. So how, how beneficial do you think a uh, significant government investment in the semiconductor sector could be? I think it'd be hugely beneficial. We have to do two things with semiconductors. Uh, first of all, we have to realize that it's a long uh, that it's a long life supply chain. It takes a while to make uh, a semiconductor. It's not like whoops, we're short. We'll have you know we'll have them all to you in you know in a, in a couple of weeks. It's a very complex product. Yes, we do need to have more domestic sources of semiconductors, which is why Intel's announcement about the, for the plants that they're building in Arizona is most welcome. I think they, I think they and other companies can do even more. Global, I don't want to lose our global uh, sources of supply, but we would globally we, you know, we're too dependent on Asia, particularly uh, and particularly on Taiwan. And of course, you know, the the, the politics of Taiwan and Ta China is getting increasingly nervous, increasingly ticklish. We don't need our, our critical semiconductor uh, uh, inputs to be interrupted by, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, problems, shall we say, uh, between Taiwan and China. So we need we need more of domestic uh, supply of semiconductors. We need to and we need to diversify our, um, you know, our global supply chains uh, for semiconductors. It, I'd be interested to think about uh, putting a semiconductor plant in Africa. I think there, there's some, if you develop the infrastructure for it, you'll certainly have the labor, you'll certainly have perhaps more interest. That, that, that could be a real generator of um, economic development in certain um, African countries. Now, I, 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 so I, I do think that, you know, the Senate bill directing, uh, something like the Senate bill directing resources uh, is a good start, but we can't entirely depend on the public sector. We have to create a, a um, an infrastructure where the private sector says, hey, if I invest, I, I, I get it back. And that, that means, you know, creating, you know, the R&D, the clusters, the cluster formations, uh, which we have um, in the United States, 
that makes semiconductor semiconductor uh, um, production is hard. It's a hard investment to make. We have to make it pay off by uh, you know creating uh, creating manufacturing ecosystems. Where if I uh, semiconductor producer, I'm gonna be in in, in an area where uh, you know the companies are coming more and more. This, the Southwest comes to mind. The Southwest is rising as as an area of, of manufacturing production. And if I'm if, if I'm a semiconductor producer, I might need to, that might that might be an interesting area. And I'm sure that's one reason that uh, Intel put its um, its um, you know new uh, plant is putting its new plants in Arizona. So yeah, yes, government help with that is certainly needed. It's a critically bad situation, but we also have to really incentivize market thinking by creating a, 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 a scientific, you know, entrepreneurial infrastructure where semiconductor investments would really pay off. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about Intel and the, their plans of, of expanding semiconductor manufacturing capacity in, in the Phoenix area and, you know, a lot of discussions around that. I admit that this is a topic I have not studied, but just off the top of my head, the question that comes to my mind is, we're hearing reports in Taiwan that they're grappling with the drought and the impact on water supply for semiconductor manufacturing, which is a big consumer of water. And right. it's not like the Southwest has an unlimited supply of water. Right. Um, so, right. you know, just an off the top of my thought head uh, concern there. <laughs> Um, I had an intern working with me. I had an intern working with me one summer uh, who researched the uh, the water um, issue. That uh, that you know that's getting buried by a lot of other uh, immediate issues. But water is a uh, water is a critical input for a lot of manufacturing processes, and we are see you know we have certainly have been seeing you know water shortages in in the developing world. I mean there are uh, girls in India who cannot go to school because they have to spend much of the day carrying water back and forth from the source of the water into the villages just so the village can exist. So you have, you know, critical situations like that. But within the United States, yes, we are, and in California uh, uh, as well, uh, we are starting to see, you know, water is becoming a, a bigger and bigger issue. That too, see that, that comes under the heading of infrastructure. There, I think a public investment in water-related infrastructure, to me, is worth the money, and it'll ping-pong down to semiconductors and and thus to a, a other industries. You know, in the time we have left, that maybe takes us to the the maybe a final question. You know, this uh, investment in infrastructure. You know, we have the the current the negotiations that are taking place on a, an infrastructure bill for the United States. Um, Right now, as we record this, there's bipartisan discussions and the potential for an agreement there. But the last figure I saw that coming out of this uh, potential infrastructure bill would be roughly 300, $350 billion that would be directed towards manufacturing and small businesses. Uh, right. What impact would this type of spending have on the manufacturing economy? Well, I mean, it's a lot. Let's let's give it the academic name. It's called public capital, roads, bridges, broadband. You know the the, the information infrastructure, of course. 
Um, and it has been shown time and again in the literature that public capital has a, uh, a positive impact on private capital because it, it, public capital is better then my private business investment works better. It has it creates a, a better a bigger return to me. And right now, it, it, it's it's in so much of the country, it's failing. Uh, and, and just just in terms of, of just in terms of competitiveness, I mean, when I fly uh, from you know uh, American airports to the, even to European airports, the difference in, in, in just the look of the, the airports between the two countries is ridiculous. We really need to start building. We really need to make our bridges work better, our broadband work better. So I, I am all, you know, it, and by the way, it doesn't necessarily have to be funded entirely from uh, the public, uh, public money. This is one area where um, infrastructure bonds can, uh, you know, and, and, you know, other types of financing arrangements can be creative in, in doing the infrastructure investment uh, in, 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 a, in a financially efficient way. But in any case, it is, it is very, very much needed. It's very much needed for manufacturing. You know, we, we worry about taxes. We worry about the tax rate and, and, how, and whether a, a rising corporate tax rate or a falling corporate tax rate, what that's going to do to competitiveness between the United States and the rest of the world in terms of manufacturing. And we should. I mean, taxes do matter. But there are many, many other things that matter in terms of uh, a manufacturing company, <coughs> excuse me, a manufacturing company's decision where to locate, to, uh, to invest. And one of them is the infrastructure of the area, uh, of, of the area. Infrastructure differences will make a difference in location decision-making. And that very much goes for the United States as well. Excellent, great. Well, with that, my sincere thanks, Cliff, for joining us for this uh, session of uh, <clears throat> the Channel Channel. And I encourage our listeners to come join us at the ECIA Executive Conference in Chicago in October, where you'll have the opportunity to uh, listen to Cliff in person. And maybe if you have your own questions, you could interact with him directly there and engage in some, some uh, conversations that would be helpful for you as, in that setting. So. Again, thank you, Cliff, and we look forward to future conversations. My pleasure. I enjoyed it.